I've got a short video I want to show you, but uh, there's a little bit of violence in it, but it's just to make a point. It's not the usual video you use in the church, but uh, just to make a just to make a point. Well, we've come to the action part of the story. <laughs> so that's what that was all about. I loved it because when I used to watch the movies and I don't go to these movies that often now but I loved it when the good guys finally win when they uh, when they finally get the bad guy catch him, he gets locked up uh, there's a sense of justice there's a sense of retribution isn't there um, and you know when the, when the good guy wins he gets all the glory doesn't he but that's in the movies you see it's a little bit different in real life because in real life God gets the glory because it's all part of his plan it's a common theme in movies the battle between good and evil and it plays out here in the book of Esther that short clip that you saw is just very slight symbolic metaphor of what is about to happen in the next two chapters we see the tables turned where finally we see the good guy win. Because we've learned from the previous chapters that it's all part of God's plan. And even at this point in time, where Mordecai seems in a very terrible position, God has it all under control. We see the centuries-old conflict between Israel and the Amalekites played out between Haman and Mordecai. Andrew reminded us earlier about the bigger picture, the battle between good and evil, and he took us right back to the Garden of Eden. Now, we're not sure who wrote the book of Esther, and I'm not much of a literary critic, but I love the way the writer includes lots of detail that provide a bit of humour and a lot of irony in the story. When you sum it up, Haman intending to destroy the Jews ends up destroying himself and his family. The gallows erected for Mordecai are those in which Haman himself is hanged. Haman's edict was intended to plunder the wealth of the Jews. Instead, his own estate falls in Jewish hands. Haman, in writing the script for his own honour and recognition, in fact, writes the script for Mordecai. And instead of receiving honour, Haman must lead Mordecai through the streets of Susa on horseback. The tables are turned. Now, although God is not mentioned in the book, the author nonetheless wants his readers to know and see that God is at work in every detail. God desires to be involved in everyone's life. And he wants to be part of your life as well. You know, when the first Soviet cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, travelled into space and scoffed that he did not see God in outer space. And even though our state continues to push out God from our schools and universities, the world cannot get rid of God. God told the people of Israel, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A promise Jesus makes to his disciples just before he ascends to heaven. He says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Now this is great assurance for us, uh, this is great assurance for us as believers, knowing that we have a faithful and trusting, trustworthy God who will, be, who will be with us, not sometimes, but every step of the way. When we are walking in God's will, when we are in the middle of God's plan, and we can see the tables turning, that's when he allows us to experience his faithfulness. And we know that he will not leave us on our own that is the time when we need to act. God has never left his people go in the past and he will never leave them and never let them go in the future. He was with them during the captivity into Babylon when the prophets were silent and the temple in ruins. God was still there. And even when kings feasted and forgot God, He remembered and scripted their doom and removed them. Esther, like Joseph and David, God brought them into the open in order to work out his plan. Whether it's a man like Joseph or David, or a woman like Hannah or Esther, or even in our recent history and modern time, We recall people like Martin Luther, Abraham Lincoln and Billy Graham, people whom God prepared for that timely hour. Esther stands out and has come to her royal position for such a time as this. God protected the nation of Israel through the centuries for the purpose of blessing the whole world. Sometimes we need to act. You know, just before Christmas, uh, where I worked, a new guy started, and he, he came from a different country, and he was getting he was getting picked on. It wasn't very comfortable, um, and I wanted to speak up, and I thought I've got to do something here because this is not looking good. I could see the young guy getting pretty frustrated, getting pretty agitated. These guys were still hammering. I thought if I speak up here. I've got seven other guys who are going to jump on me. So I thought, I better pray to God. So I sent up a quick prayer and I thought, I need to talk to these guys at morning tea time. Sure enough, I did. And I said, listen, guys, that's not the way to behave. That's not the... I I sort of, I can do that because I'm a bit older than they were, but I'm glad that God gave me that uh, impetus to actually do that. So sometimes we need to step in and uh, things did settle down. Is God preparing you for such a time to act? So we come to these two chapters, 6 and 7 of Esther, here where Haman is pleased of his high position and thinks that the king is about to honour him, yet is disgraced, humiliated and finally executed. The tables are turned. The king is having trouble sleeping. You know, God uses dreams normally to communicate a message. Here he uses insomnia. But God will use whatever it takes to get your attention. When you can't sleep, there's nothing better than a good book. You can read a book or, in this case, the king gets the book read to him. We often read children bedtime stories to get them to sleep. (laughs) But that wasn't God's intention here. 
This becomes the turning point in the sequence of events. The king is startled to hear of the service which Mordecai performed. If you remember back in chapter 2, he exposed those two guys, Big Fana and Teresh, of the plot to kill him. And he wonders what recognition and reward Mordecai received for saving his life. Now we learn a couple of things about gratitude here from the king's inquiry. First, it is better to honour than to do nothing. If we can't reward those who have been good to us, then at least let us honour them by acknowledging their kindness. It is always better late than never. We should not neglect to show gratitude to someone who has done good to us, even after a long time. You know, I recall when I was um, in Italy, in Sicily, in Italy, and I was uh, speaking to my cousin, Sebastian, his name's the same as mine, and uh, he was so grateful to my mum. And he reminded me of this. He said, oh, your mum was great, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, what? He recalled how she would pass him bread through the window during the times when they didn't have anything to eat. So to satisfy his hunger, he goes, I remember your mum, she used to pass me bread through the window. Wow, that was 50 years ago. Amazing, isn't it? But it is common in high, that men in high positions to be careless and take little notice of those below them. Very common in the workplace. Haman arrives early at the palace. He wants to get approval to execute Mordecai. But before he can even speak, the king asks Haman a hypothetical question. What should be done for the man the king delights to honour? Haman's thoughts, typically conceded, well, there should be no one else but me. But not unreasonable given the position that he had. But Haman's request is quite audacious too, suggesting that the man be dressed in the king's robe, led on the king's horse by one of the king's most noble princes. Now, this is very similar to the honour given to Joseph by King Pharaoh back in Egypt. If you recall, after Pharaoh's delight in all that Joseph did, but I think there was merit in that. So, Hammond's suggesting that the man be dressed in the king's own robe and led on the king's horse by one of the king's most noble princes. But here is where the tables are turned. The man whom the king honours is Mordecai and the nobleman who will carry out the duty will be Hammond himself. Note, the king also emphasises not to neglect anything that you have recommended. After he is paraded through the streets of Susa, Mordecai returns to the post at the king's gate. On the other hand, Haman has to swallow his pride, head home in disgrace, and then he needs to suffer more humiliation from his wife and friends who turn on him with the knowledge that Mordecai is of Jewish origin and express to Haman, your downfall is certain. Now, some commentary suggests that Haman's wife, Zeresh, like other Persians, reflect a fear of the Jews. This needs to be understood that their acknowledgement of the superiority of the God of Israel, the one and only true God, the sovereign and almighty God, 
and that Haman's edict was the final major effort in the Old Testament to destroy the people of Israel. We know there has been numerous times throughout the New Testament history where the Jews have been persecuted. At the banquet, suspense is building as the king puts the question to Esther a third time. Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. You know, when we're in God's plan and we see the bigger picture, sometimes we need to show a lot of patience. Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Timing had to be perfect and had to be in step with God's plan. Esther was patient and tactful in her request. Grant me my life and spare my people. But she entices the king in identifying her interests with his and now also identifies with the people who have been sold to destruction, slaughter and annihilation. The very words used by Haman. Esther's interest is to intercede for the saving of her people from death and destruction. But she couples this with her interest for the king in that losing so many industries some so many industries hands from the kingdom in productivity would far outweigh the price paid for their destruction. You'll remember this in chapter 3. And she considers that even slavery would be more bearable. But note carefully, she tactfully doesn't mention of the king's role in this deal. The king is amazed. Who could contrive to murder the queen and her friends? Whose heart has been filled with such bad thing? Satan has filled Haman's heart. Esther makes her move. The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Haman is described by Esther as the adversary and enemy, metaphorically standing for evil to destroy God's people. The battle between good and evil continues. Haman representing the Amalekites, Esther representing the people of Israel. The king leaves in a rage into the garden to cool down, perhaps to contemplate the situation. He doesn't send for his wise counsellors. He would be too ashamed to ask them to assist him to undo what he had rashly decreed without their knowledge, he would be thinking about what Esther had informed him in that he too is guilty of consenting to destroy the Jews. He would be annoyed at himself that he was so foolish to destroy a nation to support the egocentric and self-seeking Haman. And he would be furious at Haman being close to him, that he should be drawn by such a villain to consent to this wicked plan. Feeling betrayed by Haman, the king needed to take time out for second thoughts. 
This is perhaps a lesson for us. When we are angry, we should always pause before we come to any resolution. We must always be ruled by the spirit of God and not of ourself. In the meantime, Haman is shocked and loses heart knowing that and realising that he is doomed. And like the hasty fool and schemer that he is, and the enemy of the Jews, he begs the Jewish queen for mercy. The tables are turned. And here is God's perfect timing. As the king walks in, he finds Haman throwing himself upon the couch where Queen Esther is reclining. Disgusted at what he saw, and as soon as the king spoke, Haman's fate is sealed. They covered his face as a condemned man, not worthy any more to see or be seen by the king, and marked for execution. One of the king's attendees informs the king of the gallows that Haman had built, intended for Mordecai. The king gives order to Haman for Haman to be hanged upon his own gallows. Haman is hanged. The principle of retribution is satisfied and everything goes back to normal. We see pride brought down. God resists the proud. Haman was, Haman was by many accounts, a wicked man, but his enmity to God's people was the most provoking crime and for that, the God whom vengeance belongs deals with him according to the wickedness of his own plot. Proverbs 16.5 tells us, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. It's a case of reaping what you sow. Haman was preparing himself for the king's robe, Mordecai for the gallows, but the tables are turned. Mordecai has the crown and Haman the gallows. So what but how many of us obey God completely? You know, Moses recounts in Deuteronomy 25 that the Amalekites had no fear of God and they would cowardly cut off anyone who was vulnerable. And in verse 19, Moses reminds the people of Israel what needed to be done to be at peace. And when we move 400 years later, God gave explicit orders for King Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. But he carried those instructions in part. He thought, near enough is good enough. In 1 Samuel 15, we read and we see that Saul lies twice about obeying orders, but then he finally admits that he did not fully carry out God's command. The livestock that was not destroyed by Saul and his men shows evidence of greed. Now, it is not clear why Saul spares King Agag's life. Some suggest it was to negotiate deal with other Amalekite groups. You need to understand that the Amalekites lived in some cities 
But for most of them, they were, they were nomads. And I would say it would, it would have taken much more effort to hunt down wanderers than to take a city. Sometimes it takes effort to carry out God's will. Esther obeyed God's command completely. Saul displayed arrogance and greed. Esther showed patience and concern. Obedience is the key virtue here. God calls for us to be obedient to him and to carry out his will completely. Not part, not for our gain, not for our benefit, but for for the purpose of building his kingdom. Jesus fully and completely carried out his father's will. He said, do not speak I do not speak on my own authority, rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. I want to ask you this morning, who is living in you? Have you received Jesus in your heart? Have you accepted him as your saviour? Do you want to be part of God's winning plan? Has God prepared you for such a time to take action? If you haven't received him, you may want to ask one of the elders or one of the believers here today and they will pray with you and they'll pray for you and maybe you can turn the tables around. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your faithfulness to us knowing that you will never leave us, keeping us safe from the storms of sin and conflict. Help us to be conscious and alert as we endeavour to continue to carry out your will, as you place us in positions where you see us best suited, and pray that you'll provide for us during that time. As we go about this week, give us strength and courage in our day and show us the direction to take in order to glorify your name and praise you before the people we come in contact with. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.